0: Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word came from, but it seems that most folks have their own idea of what it is. Everything from run-down mobile homes full of meth heads to beautiful mountaintop views. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world, and once stood over 30,000 feet into the air. They span the eastern North America from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. Hello. I'm Larry Bentley. I was born and raised in these very mountains. I for one know that they are a source of unending tales and adventure. I also know that the views of an Appalachian as to what happens outside these mountains is a bit different than one might think. Join me as uh, we take a journey through these old Appalachian Mountains and beyond. I think you'll be surprised at how it goes. Welcome to Season 3 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Howdy my good friends, I hope you're doing well today. Thank you so much for stopping by again. Now, sometimes when I'm going through history, and I've said this before, it surprises me how cruel people were to each other back in the day. For example, folks weren't hearing impaired or visually challenged like we hear today. They were deaf as a door knob or blind as a bat. Now. All of the folks that I know that are blind as a bat or deaf as a door, and I think those expressions are funny and are probably laughing at me right now. Though I guess Tom is probably reading the transcript since he doesn't have his hearing. So let me say hello, Tom. You know I love you, brother. And I know you're laughing at me right now, and I got one coming, right? But nonetheless, I ran across this story about a boy with one eye that was apparently had a cataract or something severely wrong with it. And on top of that, he was born with a cleft palate, Now neither of those would be a problem in today's world, but back in the 1800s, he was referred to as a fish-eyed hair lip. Now, I'd say that likely contributed to some of his problem, which we'll be talking about today. So come on in, have a seat, grab onto something real tight, and let me tell you about Jesse Pomeroy, better known during a more insensitive time in our country, as the Fish-Eyed Jesse Harding Pomeroy was born on November 29, 1859 in Charlestown, Massachusetts to Thomas J. Pomeroy, who would end up being a veteran of the U.S. Civil War, and Ruth Ann Snowman. Now, he was the second of two children His brother Charles Jefferson Pomeroy was two years older than him. Now Jesse looked strikingly different from other children and his own father could barely look at him without saying that Jesse made him sick. He had some very striking physical abnormalities, namely a bad hair lip, one eye that was completely white and the head the size of a full ripened watermelon. Now his mother blamed a fish eye as they called it, on a reaction to a smallpox vaccine, which is very possible, but others claimed that a viral infection as a baby left him blind in one eye. Now, regardless, the absence of an iris in the pupil made him look like a real live monster before he'd even done anything or even wanted to do anything wrong. Now, he also suffered from some sort of a malfunction of the gray cells, causing dying duck fits, which doctors attributed to epilepsy. Now, no doubt that he had to, to endure some shocking abuse in, in his early life, as we all know just how cruel kids can be. So Jesse grew up in one of the worst slums in the south side of Boston in the late 1800s. He grew up in a, well, what would literally be referred to as shithole. And I do mean literally. There was no trash or garbage collection, no sewers or running water, and people just shat in the buckets and dumped them out the window and into the streets. Unless by chance they were privy to what was known as a cesspool, which was pretty much a man-made pond of raw sewage. Now, the Palmerys were not a happy family. Charles drank and had a mean temper. He once used a horsewhip on young Jesse when the boy played hooky from school. A trip behind the outhouse Jesse meant a savage beating that often ended in bloodshed. Now, Charles Pomeroy would always strip him naked before a dang good beating. The Pomeroy family was unable to have pets in the house because strange and violent things always seemed to happen when nobody was looking. For example, his mother wanted a pair of lovebirds to brighten up the dreary house, but she was afraid of what might happen to them. The last time the family had birds, they both ended up dead. Their heads had just been wrenched off and out of the wild blue yonder. Now. Then Jesse was caught wringing a neighbor's kitten out like a dish rag, so there was no way Ruth was going to allow another pet into the house. Thank God. At the age of eleven in 1871, he started to display some tendencies that, uh, shall we say, registered full moon bat on the whack-a-doodle meter. Now, those were, uh, of course, in addition to the twisting of body parts off of defenseless animals. Now. Jesse never passed up a chance to inflict suffering on weaker and younger children. He literally got off, so to speak, from tormenting those weaker than he was and watching them be scared to death or in full agony or both. Now, he would escort smaller children into the woods and whip the clothes completely off of them, which he would then tie up and torture them. At first, he would just beat, kick, and punch the holy hell out of them, but as he got older, this stopped getting it done for him, and he graduated to cutting on them with a fillet knife on top of that. Now, on Christmas day of 1871, fresh off the Christmas dinner, and with all the warm turkey still settling in their guts, two men lumbered up Powderhorn Hill near Chelsea Creek in South Boston, near a little outhouse of a Cabin that they heard, where they heard whimpering. As they walked up to the building, sounds got louder. They busted down the door of the shanty looking little building to <clears throat> find that it was a little boy, Billy Payne, no more than four years old, was hanging up by his wrist from a rope lashed to the center beam of the outhouse. He was nearly unconscious and half naked. The cold weather had turned the boy ashen and white, and I guess that was where there wasn't blue and purple. Bruises from the beating he just took. They cut the poor boy down while noticing the brutal battle signs all over the boy's body. His back was covered with big red, blue, and blue whelps. The boy was so messed up that he couldn't tell anybody even who hit John. So the police filed a report and hoped that, uh, well, it's just maybe an isolated incident. Those hopes hit the skids when, in February of 1872, And that was when Tracy Hayden, age seven, became the next victim. And he too was lured to Paterhorn Hill by young Mr. Pomeroy. Of course, nobody knew it was Mr. Pomeroy at the time. And once the two boys were along, Jesse pounced on, bound, and tortured the boy just like he did Billy Payne. Tracy's front, front teeth were knocked completely out of his head, his eyes blackened, and his nose broken by what appeared to be a freaking madman. Now, like Billy Payne, Tracy Hayden was stripped and whipped with a switch about the thickness of a corn cob, leaving deep red whelps and blue whelps all over him. And the poor little boy told police that his assailant, who he was unable to describe other than having brown hair, threatened to cut off his penis, too. Now, at this point, all the police could do is look for the teenage boy with brown hair. They were just powerless to stop the maniac. They knew that they had a deviant at work and that he would probably strike again now. In early spring of 1872, the evil little monster attacked again. This time, he promised eight-year-old Robert Mayer a trip to see the circus. He dragged the boy over a fence and into his favorite little outhouse for processing. That's where he stripped the boy naked and beat him with a stick. He forced the poor boy to cuss as he kept up the beating. Now, Robert told the police that the maniac was, shall we say, polishing his sword as he continued to beat, the, try to beat the life out of him. And then after reaching his, uh, I guess, orgasm, Chessie let the boy go, but threatened him with death if he ever told anybody. Then he scampered off without a care in the world as Robert sat there trying to get his breath up to leave police were now about as pissed off as they would be if they had enough sand in their ass cracks to make a six inch pearl the parents of the boston or parents in boston all together with the police started a massive manhunt questioning hundreds of brown-haired south boston teenage boys with probably no luck at all the inhuman scamp as the paper called the unknown pervert slipped through the dragnet and the parents warned their children not to talk to any strange boys, and as word spread, an inaccurate description replaced the one they were using. The new description looked like a devilish devil in appearance. He was now described as having red hair and a wispy red beard. Unbeknownst to anybody, the real monster Jesse Pomeroy, who at twelve years old was just as smooth skinned as a baby's butt. Now, keeping up with the rhythm of his regular cycle of doom, Jesse stuck struck again in mid-July of 1872 when he lured a seven-year-old, again this, the same dadgum outhouse on Powderhorn Hill with the promise of two bits for running an area. And once again the boy was stripped, bound, whipped, and beaten until Jesse once again reached his climax, then promising to kill the boy if he left the outhouse, Jesse ran off into the swamp. That did it. A $500 reward was posted For information leading to the arrest of the fiendish boy, as they called him, who committed the diabolical outrage, as they said, according to the Boston Evening Transfer, that is. Folks, that's $9,839 in today's money. So, then they had vigilantes on top of that, running around the streets of Chelsea, trying to find the damn deviant that was targeting children. I wonder where Dog the Bounty Hunter was or maybe his great-grandfather back then maybe he could have found him but it was just a few days after that that ruth pomeroy finally headed up to the adenoids with jesse's father thomas after she came home to find jesse hanging naked from a tree out back uh, in near the barn as thomas was throwing another good beating on him for no good reason reason other than probably he just survived the first one or the last one now She divorced the disturbed nutball and decided to move her family from Chelsea to the less expensive accommodations across Chelsea Creek in South Boston. Now, for the love of Mike, they moved from the shithole directly into the sewage. Uh, The poor little spindly and sickly seven-year-old boy named George Pratt was walking around the South Boston shoreline, supposedly looking for treasure. Of course, we all know that he was... Probably looking for something to tear up, just like we all did back when we was his age. But he was approached by an older boy who looked at him through his good eye and offered him a quarter to help him run a small errand. Now that's about $491 in today's money, so you bet your rear end that George jumped on that. Can you imagine the damage a kid could have done in a candy store with that kind of money? The poor little guy ended up being bound and tortured. That's right, you... You have told three lies, Jesse told the poor little naked and afraid George just before he beat the holy hell right out of him with a leather belt. Now this time, aside from tearing at the boy's flesh with his fingernails, he stepped it up because the regular torture just wasn't getting it done for him anymore and he literally took a blame bite right out of the boy's face. Now, don't ask me if he ate it. I don't know and I really don't want to know. He then took one of the his mother's huge sewing needles and made a pincushion out of the boy. Finally, he tried prying open the boy's eyelid so he could shuck his eye out like an oyster, he said. And the poor boy managed to somehow stop him from doing that. Apparently, Jesse got all frustrated by the by that because he then bit a hunk out of the boy's rear end and ran off again. Less than a month later, the maniac kidnapped and assaulted a six-year-old boy, Harry Austin, who he's ripped and beat like he always did this time he didn't stop just the beating and with the boy's own belt the deviant took out his pocket knife and stabbed the boy under each armpit and then between his shoulder blades in the back now then while the boy laid there flopping around in pain jesse knelt down and tried to cut off the boy's penis but he uh, became so shocked by his own action that he was just plain unable to finish the job this time. <music> Folks, six days after that attack, uh, Jesse lured Joseph Kennedy. And no, I don't know if it's uh, a member of the, the Kennedy family, but there's a good chance it was before, uh, you know, they made their fortune. But Joseph Kennedy was seven years old, and he led him to the marshes near the bay and beat him half to death. Then he used a knife on the little boy just like he did the last time. Then the whack-a-doodle forced the boy to kneel and recite the Lord's Prayer with twisted, perverted, and obscene words in place of Scripture. Of course, the boy didn't want to do it, so... Jesse lashed him through the face and dragged him into the water and soaked his cuts with salt water. And still not being done, six days later, a five-year-old boy was found lashed to a post near railroad tracks in South Boston and told police that an older boy who lured him into the remote area with the promise to see soldiers. And when they were all alone, the boy stripped, beat him, and slashed his head with a knife. Just as the madman placed his knife against the boy's throat, He was surprised by railroad workers and just ran off. The boy, named Robert Gould, gave police their first good lead in the case. He described his attacker as a large boy with a fish eye like a white marble. And uh, Boston police conducted a classroom-by-classroom search of the Boston school system with the victims of the moon bat in hopes of getting lucky and finding the maniac. And on September 21st, 1872, the police came to Jesse Pomeroy's school with victim Joe Kennedy and went from room to room with the principal. Now, young Mr. Kennedy was unable to identify his assailant in any other classrooms as Jesse Pomeroy breathed a sigh of relief, I reckon. Now, he must have been wearing his shades or something to hide his eye. I don't know, but we all know that a deviant just can't let well enough alone for some unknown reason on the way home from school that very day the dumb idiot walked into the South Boston police station Joe Kennedy and the officer who had accompanied him to the school were in the police station when Jesse walked in Jesse quickly made a U-turn and headed out the door and down the street but it was too late the boy had seen him from across the room and pointed his butt out to police who jumped up and ran him down now they pounced on the four foot nine, ninety pound monster who was forty pounds head and forty pounds of head, and locked him in a cell at the station house and questioned him. After several hours of tightening the thumb screws on the boy, police gave up and let Jesse just sit there and think about what he had done, and they called his mother. I bet if they'd called his father, he'd sang like Reba McIntyre, but the police left the maniac all by himself in a dark cell until after midnight when they woke him up to try again to squeeze a confession out of him. The officers threatened him with a hundred-year jail sentence unless he admitted his crimes, and with that, Jesse broke down and confessed to all the crimes. The next day, young Mr. Pomeroy was dragged down to the main Boston jail for his victims each confirmed that he was the boy who had molested him. Ruth Pomeroy took the stand in defense of her own son as she was dragged, he was dragged in front of the judge to hear his charges. She said that he was a good boy as she cried, and he was obedient and hard-working. She didn't mention, of course, him wringing out cats and pinching the heads off birds, I don't reckon. But Jesse also testified in the hearing, offering only the meekest excuse for his acts I couldn't help myself, he said, hanging his head in shame, which is probably the only way he could hold it, having his neck muscles, you know, needing a break. But the juvenile justice ordered Jesse to be held in the House of Reformation in Westboro until he was 18. The newspapers reported that both Jesse and Ruth Pomeroy were in tears as he was dragged off to Westboro. Now, the Westboro House of Reformation was the place where they sent young deviants once they were convicted of a crime. Now, Westboro was a cruel place for the strong preyed on the weak. Well, they just sent him to heaven, didn't they, I reckon. The inmates were expected to work most of the day on tasks such as brass nail making, chair caning, and silver plating, and then were subjected to a four-hour school day with discipline being along military lines. Jesse figured out pretty fast that if he wanted to get out of the West Westboro before his 18th birthday, he was going to have to act like he was all better, so he became a model inmate. Now, shortly after that, he was brought to the reformerly that is, Jesse was taken out of the chair shop and assigned as a hall monitor for the love of Mike. He thrived in his position of authority, taking great pleasure in laying the smack down and maintaining order in his dormitory. Now. On the outside, <clears throat> excuse me, Ruth Pomeroy stepped up her campaign to free her son, who she considered innocent of all charges. He was too young, she argued, to be a perpetrator of such crimes. Now, the police arrested the wrong boy, she said. She wrote letters to the Board of Overseers and Westbury Reformery and to anybody else that listened to her. Despite it all, the very thing that convinced the overseers to free the maniac was the maniac himself. There was no reason to keep him, they decided after an investigator from the state had visited the Pomeroy home and found Ms. Pomeroy to be a hard-working, honest, caring woman. Charles Pomeroy, Jesse's brother, was also considered an upstanding citizen. He had a very large paper route, and when he wasn't delivering newspapers, he ran a newspaper stand outside his mother's dress shop. The Pomeroy's promised to put Jesse to work in a newsstand and the and dress shop, and Ruth was determined to keep a closer eye on her boy, whose behaviors, and the investigator believed, were the result of a lack of supervision. The broken home had left Jesse well, t- to, quote, drift pretty much on his own, end quote. Now, despite the horrendous crimes Jesse had committed, the police in South Boston in the precinct were forgiven and it isn't best to be down on a boy too hard for too long the captain said at the precinct house just give him a chance to redeem himself suckers but less than a year and a half after his arrest jesse pomeroy was released and set loose on the poor unsuspecting public none of the authorities thought to Warn the neighbors. Most of them thought that the so-called fish-eyed hair lip had been locked up tight and wouldn't be coming home until he was at least 18 years old. Six weeks after Jesse Pomeroy was sent packing from Westboro on March 18, 1874, he was opening up his mother's dress shop and uh, his brother's newsstand, which were located right across the street from the home. Now, Jesse was finishing up sweeping the store and was talking with a boy, Rudolph Corr, who spending money by running errands for the Pomeroy's. As the boys talked, 10-year-old Katie Curran, dressed in a black and green plaid dress, ragged overcoat and scarf, came walking in. Do you have any notebooks, she asked Jessie. Now Katie had a new teacher at school, and she was excited about getting to class that day. With her mother's permission, she had ran out after breakfast to get a new notebook for school. Katie was expected home, about 8.30 to take her younger sister to school. Katie explained that she had already been to one store nearby and they were out of notebooks. Jesse said that he had one notebook left, but it was kind of messed up a bit by an ink spot on the cover. I'll let you have it for two cents off as he checked her out with his good eye. Jesse asked Rudolph if he would run to the butcher shop to get scraps to feed the cats and take a few coins from Jesse and he left off the store. Now, we already know where this is going, don't we, folks? Now, there's a store downstairs, the now-reformed maniac told Katie. Uh, there might be some other notebooks down there, so let's run and look. A little girl followed, and uh, they started down the stairs, reaching the bottom of the steps. She took a couple of steps into the cellar and realized that she had been lied to, but it was too late. The deviant put his arm around her neck, and and his hand over her mouth, and folks, he cut the little girl's head completely off with his pocket knife. Then he dragged her over behind the water closet, kicked, beat, and stabbed her in abdomen and even into her genitals, and then covered her up with rocks and ashes from the fireplace. Now, when he got done with that, he heard his brother enter the store upstairs, and he washed his hands in the water closet and ran upstairs and went back to work just like uh, he'd. Done nothing but maybe eat a piece of candy. Now, of course, within an hour, Katie's mother, Mary, was out in the streets going crazy searching for the little girl. The poor woman went to Tobin's general store first, and the owner told her that Katie had been there and left because they didn't have any notebooks. And Thomas Tobin, the owner, said, I sent her over to Miss Pomeroy's. And that was when the woman dang near passed out. She had heard that the fish eyed hair lip had now, and now she was heard about the fish eyed hair lip being out of the uh, reform school, and now she was scared for Katie. On her way to Pomeroy, she walked past the police station. She went and talked with the captain, the good captain. Much like today, they failed to see that there was a possibility that government had ran a system that was managed by eggheads who were so inept that they couldn't make it into private sector so they have to resort to the state position so that they can tell everybody who actually has a talent for doing the job that they can't do and tell them with a straight face and tell them how to live their life. So, yeah, what did he say? And he had confidence and naive assurance that uh, Jesse Pomeroy wasn't a threat to Katie. All right. Captain Henry Dyer told her, See, it says right here on his release papers that he was completely rehabilitated in reform school. Besides, he only hurt little boys. He never attacked a girl. Captain Sucker sent Miss Curran home and with, with a smug tone and told her, Katie probably just got lost and would likely be home by the end of the day. Then a day passed as the word spread about the little girl's disappearance. Rudolph Corr told Mary Curran, that he had seen Katie at the Pomeroy store, so again, the poor woman went to the police. The good captain, still in confident denial, said that the core boy was a known liar, and and I will, but I'll send a detective over to the shop to have a look around. Don't worry, Miss Curran, we'll find her. Detective Adams jaunted on over to the Pomeroy store and was met by an unfriendly Ruth Pomeroy, who knew nothing about the body in the basement but she was aware that the neighborhood was about to break out in torches and the ropes and go get themselves one fish-eyed hair lip. Now, being madder than a sack full of wolverines that her boy was being accused again, she agreed to let the detective poke around the store, and as he expected, he found not even a single hair out of place in the whole store on anybody. Folks, we're nowhere near done with this one. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend with Larry Bentley. The police continued investigating every lead that they had as by now weeks had passed by. There was speculation that Katie's father had shipped the girl off to a convent. Now, she was the product of a Protestant-Catholic marriage, and in a Protestant town like Boston, they just plain didn't like Catholics, and that was a natural assumption among those who were Protestant. Now, Jesse now being completely oblivious to the possibility of actually being caught, and... Doing it again, I guess, I've just kept trying to lure young children into deserted buildings with promises of trips to the circus, candy, and money. Most of them by now were smart enough to refuse the offer, although in one case, he blamed near succeeded in luring his next victim to his trap. Now, He walked up to a five-year-old boy and asked him if he knew where Vernon Street was. The boy was named Harry Field. And he told Jesse that he did happen to know where Vernon Street was. So Jesse offered him five cents to show him. They walked hand in hand down the street. And with Jesse carrying a broom handle in his other hand. And uh, uh, when the two, <clears throat> two of them reached Vernon Street, Harry asked for his nickel. Instead, Jesse grabbed the boy and pulled him into a doorway and told him to keep his dad gum mouth shut. He then dragged little Harry through a maze of streets and search of a good spot to throw a beacon on him. Now, as the two boys rounded the corner, Jesse came face to face with one of his neighbors from his old neighborhood who knew exactly who he was and what he was up to. The neighbor yelled at Jesse, and the two started arguing. Harry yanked from his hand from Jesse's hand and ran hell-bent for leather down the street. He ran all the way home, busted through the door, and pounced into his mother's arm. The anonymous neighbor, (coughs) who had happened along at just the right time, had actually saved Harry's life, probably. Now, it was April 1874 when the Millen family moved to the house right across the street from the poor Curran family, who still didn't know where their daughter Katie was. They had a four-year-old son named Horace, (coughs) who was described as almost angelic in his appearance. His brother enjoyed dressing him in fine clothes, and on this particular day he was dressed especially nice. He wore a fine black velvet hat and a golden with a golden tassel and a black and white jacket and a red white check shirt with a velvet trim and black knickers. Now, Horace liked himself some sweets, and on this lovely spring morning, he'd managed to get a couple of pennies from his mother to spend at the bakery along the way. He came across an older boy who asked him where he was heading. Once the older boy learned where he was headed, the two of them set off for the bakery together. Unfortunately uh, for Horace, the older boy was Jesse Pomeroy. Horace bought himself a small cake at the bakery and shared it with Jesse, who innocently suggested a trip to the nearby harbor. Happily, Horace slipped his hand right into Jesse's and they set off together. A myriad of eyewitnesses saw the two boys set off toward the bay. One woman recalled a look of excitement on the other boy's face as he was way too happy for somebody that was just taking a walk from a bakery or to a bakery. And the expression on the boy's face was so odd in fact that she actually went inside to get her glasses so she could get a real good look at him and make sure he was smiling as big as he looked like he was without her glasses on. Now another witness remembered seeing two boys who he thought to be brothers come by and he thought it was unusual to see children this far out of town alone, but uh, the older boy looked like he was a reasonable young man, and, and to witness this, just uh, he just let it go. Now, man, for being ready to <clears throat> lynch a maniac for, you know, the missing Katie Curran just a few weeks ago, all of a sudden everybody sure seems to, you know, not remember who or what he looked like or what he was up to anymore, don't they? After all, it's not like he didn't stand out like a pair of red knee-high socks on a geezer at a beach wearing Birkenstocks, but uh, I'm just saying. Of course, Jesse had decided to torture and kill Horse Millen the first time he saw him. This time, he decided to make sure that there wouldn't be no neighbor or anybody show up to get in his way. After they arrived at the waterfront, he told Horse, let's rest for a minute poor little boy was completely oblivious to what was about to happen when horse sat down jesse took out his pocket knife yes the very same one that he killed Carrie, katie karen with and by now completely wrought with rage grabbed the little horse and slashed the boy's throat there was blood all over the place but the boy was still alive and that made jesse madder in hell and uh, <clears throat> made his cheese slide all the way off his cracker and he Tore into horse, repeatedly stabbing the helpless child over and over. The horse tried to fight back, but a wounded four year old ain't much of a match for a psychopath with a knife. His hands and lower arms showed signs of defensive wounds and suggested that he was alive during most of the attack. Finally, Jesse cut through horse's windpipe, which ended the fight, but he re- The reform maniac just wasn't done yet. He kept on going, stabbing and slashing the boy, especially in the genital area. He took his knife and stabbed the boy right in his eye, right through the eyelid. The coroner would later count no less than 18 stab wounds to the boy's chest. The nutball had also attempted to castrate the little boy and ended up mutilating his scrotum instead. The deep gouges in the sand made by the boy's flailing legs a dozen cuts to his arms and hands, as well as the condition of the hands or cells, as the fists were clenched so tight in agony that the fingernails embedded themselves into his palm, that all indicated that Horace had died an absolutely excruciatingly horrible death. Now, Horace Millen died in the early afternoon, probably not long after lunch. It wasn't until early four p- or nearly 4 p.m. that anybody happened along to find his body. The Millen family had been searching for Horace since uh, before noon, and at 5.30 p.m., John Millen went to the police station to report the boy missing. The police promised to be on the lookout for him. Apparently, information didn't get around too quick back in, so it wasn't until much later that they put two and two together and figured out that the body they'd found was the missing Horace Millen, who had been taken to the, <clears throat> be examined by the coroner. Now, shortly after 9 p.m., a police officer was dispatched to the Millen home with the awful news. First thing that the newspapers and most of the police officers thought was that there must be another fish eyed hair lip on the loose. As to the best of their knowledge, the first one was still locked up. After all, this crime fit him like it was tailor made for him. It wasn't long before the chief came out of the dark, I guess, and <clears throat> where he had been praising the reform school and ordered his officers to go pick up Jesse Pomeroy. They found him at home and took him into custody despite his mother raising all kind of hell at him. Jesse reassured his mother that he hadn't done anything wrong and he'd be back home just a little bit. Unbeknownst to him or his mother, that would be about the last time he'd ever set foot outside a jail cell, let alone back home. They dragged him downtown and threw him in a hot box for for six police officers who pounded him with questions and pounded on the tables and yelled at him and where they <clears throat> where he asked him where he'd been all day, who had seen him and did he know Horace Mellon and how had he gotten all those scratches all over his face. Uh, Jesse stood up to the onslaught for quite some time. <clears throat> he denied any knowledge of the crime but couldn't account for large expanses of time. All the while, he gave detailed descriptions of what he had seen and done during other times, and he was unable to offer up an alibi for his movements between 11 and 3. The police carefully examined the boy. He had what appeared to be a marsh grass stuck to his shoes, which were also covered in mud. They made him take off his jacket and shirt, where they found on the front and under his shirt a reddish-brown stain about the size of a nickel, and the police took it for evidence. Jesse admitted that he owned the knife and that he'd kept it at home. The sergeant was then sent over to the house to find it and came back with it a bit later. The knife had a three-inch blade and was clogged with dirt, and, which appeared to be stuck to dried blood, and the coroner took it to see if it fit the horse's wounds. They then threw the maniac in a cell where he promptly fell asleep and slept like a baby without a care in the world. Next morning, detectives took off the to the crime scene with Jesse's boots and horse's shoes to attempt to place the boy at the crime scene and uh, the other places, even leading to it. Of course, horse's footprints could be found at the swell and the <clears throat> meandering trail of prints, and large ones and small ones both led back to the railroad tracks. The police used the cutting edge technology of plaster repairs to make casts of the footprints where they found that there was a peculiar indention in one of the plaster sole impressions of one of the larger footprints. And with further examination, they found that those prints could have only been made by one pair of shoes, and that was those worn by Jesse Pomeroy. Now armed with evidence that Jesse had at least been present at the crime scene, the officers tore a swath back through town as they hurried back to jail to wake up the moon bat for more questioning. But Jesse still denied the whole thing. Captain Henry Dyer, now sitting there feeling like a biggest sucker that God himself had ever allowed to exist on Earth, told Jesse, we're putting you under arrest for the murder of Horace Miller. Jesse sat there looking at the good captain through his good eye like he didn't have a care in the world and said, you can't prove a thing. Now, Captain Dyer told him that uh, they could link him to the crime and besides that he was truly innocent he shouldn't care to go to the funeral home take a look at the little boy's body jesse didn't want to go but detectives was ordered to drag him over there into the undertaker's fine establishment anyway and jesse snapped and broke down after seeing a little boy in his casket he admitted to killing horace millen then he said i'm sorry i did it as tears rolled down his cheeks uh, please don't tell my mother he said Detective Wood asked Jesse if he knew what would happen to him now, Jesse apparently acted as though he had no idea how serious it was, and replied, Just put me somewhere. I can't do such things again. I just can't can't control myself. I guess it never occurred to him that that somewhere else he wanted to be put. It uh, might include a grave, but... The good coroner held an inquest to determine Horace Mellon's cause of death and established that the authorities had probable cause to charge Jesse Pomeroy with flat-out, plain-old murder. During the inquest, the fish-eyed, Harry lip, as they called him, had an opportunity to meet with attorneys and uh, the boy by now of uh, very few supporters he had and or <clears throat> he did recant his confession when he did meet with those attorneys. Uh, attorneys and his few supporters. When he was called to the stand, he denied everything and recounted the whole story different than, uh, than of how he had actually spent the day. The evidence against him was uh, sufficient to indict him for first-degree murder, though. The penalty in Massachusetts for murder was death by hanging from a nice freshly built gallows uh, by a brand new rope made of Kentucky hemp and boiling oil just to make sure that it popped your neck at just the right time and right place. Now, the only problem with that all was that uh, the state had never stretched the neck of anybody as young as 14 years old. And Jesse Pomeroy, of course, they'd never had anybody that young do anything <laughs> that either, you know. They'd never had anybody that young do anything that, that bad, so they were already trying to figure out what to do with the boy. And uh, that's what they were stuck on. At this point, we got to remember something. They still ain't found Katie Curran's body yet. Of course, Jesse was the prime suspect out on the street with Ruth Pomeroy, who couldn't get her head out around the fact that her innocent little Jesse was a murderous maniac and blamed all the families of the victims for Jesse's problem. I guess if they'd just shut up, it'd all go away. But that was all good for her business, which uh, went down in flames because she wouldn't stop blaming everybody but Jesse. So after vacating the building, Ruth and her son continued trying to eke out a living from home. Unfortunately for them, their former co-tenant in a building was riding the waves of success in his business and decided to expand. That meant that the basement of Ruth Pomeroy's former shop had to be refurbished. It didn't take them long to find the remains of Katie Curran when they went to doing that. And there wasn't any need to wonder who had committed that crime. The only real question was whether his family knew about it. That's when the police took Ruth and Charles Pomeroy downtown as accessories after the fact. Another reason for their incarceration was to protect them from the crowd, which had gathered outside their house with pitchforks, ropes, and everything else they could gather to put an end to the Pomeroy crap. Now, Jesse finally confessed to killing Katie Curran. He recounted the murder step by step and included every detail, noting that his mother and brother had absolutely no knowledge of it whatsoever. When he was asked why he killed a girl, the maniac said, I don't know, I guess I just wanted to see how she would act. Now he stood accused of two murders, and it looked all the more likely that they were going to have to hang a 14-year-old boy. The only thing that could save the boy now was to try to prove that he was completely pegged out on the nutball meter. Now, the question for the young Mr. Pomeroy's lawyers was whether their client was just plain sick or if he was legally insane, or for them it was just a difference between him swinging or walking into mental asylum. Now, while the press and the public both demanded that he be publicly disemboweled and burned at the stake, the doctors began examining Jesse and find out maybe of what was going on behind that big oversized head of his. Three alienists, as the practitioners of, <clears throat> and especially of mental disorders were called back then, examined a walk Rubik's Cube, two of, for the defense and one for the prosecution. They talked to Jesse for hours on end, conducting over 14 interviews, trying to probe the boy's mind. Jesse told the alienists that uh, preceding each time he experienced a sharp pain in the left side of his head which subsequently passed to the right side and then back and forth. The pain prompted the violence. At least that's what he claimed. The feeling which accompanied the pain was that I must whip or kill a boy or girl. I could not help doing it, Jesse told the doctor. Then two months before he went to trial, Jesse recanted his confessions and in a conversation with the good doctor, and now adamantly denied having anything to do with murder. No amount of prodding then or ever could maybe change his mind. The final report issued by the doctor stated that Jesse has no pity for the boys and girls that he tortured and the victims of his homicides and no remorse or sorrow for his actions. He summed up his report by saying two conflicting opinions. First, he said Jesse could discriminate between right and wrong. And, second, that the boy was, and forever would be, a threat to society. He needed to be carefully restrained of his liberty, that others might be endangered. And he finished by saying, in his opinion, Jesse Pomeroy was nuts. <clears throat> the facts in the case that of Jesse Pomeroy weren't in dispute. Although Jesse's denied killing Horace Millen, <clears throat> his attorneys weren't hoping for anything but to keep his neck the same length it was when he started trial. For his part, Jesse assumed that he would be put in jail for maybe five or six years until he was old enough to go join the Navy, which would teach him discipline. Throughout the sometimes boring, sometimes gruesome testimony, Jesse sat at the defense table with a look of boredom on his face, and he watched the whole thing through his good eye. And when a witness was recounting how Jesse had told him that he murdered poor Horace, Jesse sat with his head back in his hands, laced behind his head like uh, maybe he was thinking about going fishing or something. Following closing arguments the next day, the jury retired to consider Jesse's fate. After five hours of deliberation, breaking once to have questions, you know, answered by the judge, the jury reached the verdict. They found Jesse Pomeroy guilty of first-degree premeditated murder, and the sentence for such crime was mandatory, death by hanging. The jurors, well, they requested clemency for the boy on account of his age. This was how, uh, you know, only <clears throat> within the power of the gov- governor to grant, though, and the judge had no choice but to condemn the boy to death. Capital punishment in 19th century America, well, that was typically swift, folks, with the average time from sentencing to execution, and you rarely made it past one year final decision on what to do with the maniac was left to Governor Governor William Gaston, who did what any good politician in a situation like that would do. He appointed a Blue Ribbon Committee to study the question and report back to him. When the committee came back, hopelessly divided, Governor Gaston turned to the people for a public hearing. Now, after listening to a day of testimony from both sides, Governor Gaston thanked the people and his committee, and he said that he would make the the matter under advisement. Weeks passed, during which time Boston Boston Child died at the hands of another mentally disturbed young man, this time in his 20s, and the public outcry for a decision in the Pomeroy case uh, grew to a fever pitch. Governor Gaston brought his committee back together for more debate and final vote. By a vote of five to four, the committee recommended letting Jesse Pomeroy's sentence stand. As soon as Governor Gaston signed the death warrant, Jesse was gonna hang. But Governor Gaston remained resolute with his unwillingness to (coughs) execute Jesse. His stand probably cost him the reelection, and in eighteen seventy six, Alexander Rice, who during his campaign pledged to hang that fish eyed hair lip, was He was elected governor on the basis of that. And in August of 1876, two years from the time Jesse went to trial, when hunger for his blood had waned a bit, in the general public, Governor Rice called together his advisors and revisited the fate of Jesse Pomeroy. The people were distant enough from the time and the place of his crimes to accept punishment less than death. And the counselors argued that but with the punishment would have to still be a severe one. Now, Governor Rice agreed quietly without much press attention. He commuted Jesse's death sentence to life in prison. To make the sentence more than just life behind bars, Governor Rice ordered that Jesse serve the sentence in solitary confinement. That meant that uh, the governor ordered Jesse Pomeroy to be pretty much buried alive. Now, Years passed, and the surviving victims of Jesse Pomeroy faded into obscurity as they grew up and tried to live normal lives. Now, the families of Horace Millen and Katie Curran moved on with their lives to the extent that a parent can, who buries a child. But Ruth Pomeroy, well, she lost a son as well, but <clears throat> once a month she was permitted to visit him in Charlestown Prison where he had been walled up. She was the only visitor Jesse ever had. Jesse endured a mind-numbing, boring existence in his small world of concrete and steel. He ate alone in his cell. He exercised alone in a solitary yard and periodically was allowed to bathe. Now, he was allowed access to the reading material and always been a bright boy. He turned into into a voracious reader. Now, he could write a in several languages, but he didn't have anybody to converse with, so he spoke English only. Now, with nothing else to do, Jesse put his mind to escape. Over the years, he made several attempts to dig his way out, once stopping up a gas line in his cell to try to blow the door off, and, uh, well, some claimed that it might have been a suicide attempt, but I reckon he probably didn't care if he got blasted through a wall at that point, and once uh, he even succeeded in getting out of his cell, the only people he ever saw were the guards, though, who patrolled by his cell, and <clears throat> once a month he saw his mother. But uh, when she died, that stopped. Now, the only thing they did was put him right back in his cell because he didn't have anywhere to go because he was in solitary confinement. Now, the story of Jesse Pomeroy would show up in the papers now and then, and the reporter would call the prison to check on his condition they were not allowed to interview him throughout his imprisonment jesse pomeroy considered himself innocent of his crimes and believed that he was wrongly convicted he showed no remorse or pity for his victims governors came and went wardens were assigned to charlestown prison they met their most infamous prisoner and moved on finally in 1917 four decades after he was entombed Jesse's sentence to of confinement to solitary was relaxed, and he was allowed to move into general population for some time. He enjoyed being the prisoner's most notorious or the prison's most notorious inmate. He loved approaching new inmates, introducing himself, and asking them what they knew about him. Most had grown up hearing of the infamous Jesse palmroy, and they were either disgusted or frightened when they realized who he was, who the old man was by this time. You know, this pleased Jesse, and, and, and to no end, in fact, and the people still knew who he was and had heard of his murder. Now, <clears throat> soon the time came, though, when young men sent to Charlestown Prison had never heard of Jesse Pomeroy, and he became just another dried-up old face in prison. This was the ultimate punishment for a whack job and uh, led to his health starting to deteriorate. In 1929, 71-year-old Jesse Pomeroy was moved from general population at Charlestown and taken by automobile to Bridgewater Prison Farm where he could receive better medical care. It was his only ride in a car and he could actually give a damn less. This prison inmate is a deadened creature gazing with the lustrous eyes and to the world it means nothing to him is what one reporter wrote jesse pomeroy finally died two years later at bridge to bridgewater and he was dismissed in the press as the most friendless person in the world and a psychopath after 58 years in prison almost all of it spent in solitary confinement Jesse Pomeroy's family wishes were that his body be cremated and his ashes scattered to the four winds. Hope you enjoyed our story today, folks. It's an odd one, to say the least, and if you have, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to subscribe, please, on whatever media you're listening. Now, come on join us on Facebook group, Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend Podcast, where we talk Appalachian or anything else you'd like to talk about. I'll be right back real soon with another Appalachian murder mystery and legend and I will see you then.